Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadborn, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hola. So, How are you doing, Daniel? Um, I'm doing okay. My, my neighbor has finally stopped playing music and vacuuming his car with the loudest vacuum in existence. And oh. seeing as that we're talking about consciousness, it did put me into a heightened state of conscious awareness of how angry I was at the situation <laughs> of how loud it was. I slept in until 2 p.m. today, so I did not engage in consciousness today. <laughs> but sleep is a state of consciousness because you are somewhat consciously aware when you're sleeping. My, my favorite conscious awareness bit of trivia is that if there are a group of ducks sleeping on a log, the ducks at the end of the line are conscious on the side of their body facing away from the other ducks. And the ducks in the center um, kind of enter sort of a, a full sleep state. Oh, that's it's interesting. Really weird. I remember reading that in a intro psych textbook talking about sleep and consciousness. And it sort of always stuck because I was like, well, that's really odd. <laughs> Yeah, odd ducks. I guess it's to prepare for like the eventual alligator attack. Yeah, it's 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 a survival awareness. So like the the ducks the the ducks on the outside are somewhat conscious, and then kind of the ones in the middle of the group, they don't have to be because the other ducks will get attacked first. Right. I wonder if they take shifts. I don't know that, but now I need to figure that out for our next podcast which will probably fit in if i'm talking about ducks and weird stuff so mm -hmm. yeah no i wonder if uh ducks are an egalitarian society <laughs> we're talking about consciousness today and we could go on and talk about sleep or awareness but textbooks do that pretty well at least on a basic level and that's not i don't know podcast fun unless we talk about mm -hmm. people who stay up for like 72 hours plus and start hallucinating or dangerous stuff like that so we're gonna talk about drugs instead altered Huzzah! states of consciousness oh callback oh yeah that's right i have i have completely suppressed altered states from my conscious you know awareness <laughs> until now and now it's all flooding back um and I guess with that in I'm mind, terribly sorry. Yeah, with, with that, I'll, I'll give I'll give the uh, the Mason Parish warning. You got to yeah. be got to be serious. We got to take things um, with what we have at our disposal, and we uh, are not clinicians. We are going to be talking about some clinical research. We are not doctors, mm -hmm. and we are not advising you to go out and use THC or psilocybin. Um, mm -hmm. if, if you have consulted with someone, if you are in a state where that is legal and you decide on your own knowledge gathering quest that it's something you want to do, cool. That's on you. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not condoning nor condemning your particular substance patterns. Because um, we both live in states where that's not possible and we have to be responsible educators uh yep 
today. But because we're a psychologist, it is fun to talk about. And yes. It is within our purview to converse about. So I, I so. guess, what are we going to talk about first? You want to delve into Reefer Madness? Oh, Reefer Madness. Yeah, we can talk about cannabis first. Um, cannabis is, uh, I'm sure everyone is familiar with the uh, Mary Jane or the marijuana or the cannabis or the THC. Um, very likely you have a grandmother or great aunt in your life who is all obsessed with that CBD right now. That's all the rage. And so this is all within the same plant family. Um, CBD, of course, is uh, legal just across the board um, and provides similar experiences in terms of body relaxation um, that THC does, but THC also comes with some psychotropic uh, side effects as well, which is thus the madness and the reefer madness. Um, I will say we mentioned the states and territories of legality. Um, in Texas, only CBD is legal. Um, there is a few special cases where you can get THC in Texas for very specific uh, medical conditions. I think there's one medical condition and there's one dispensary in the state and they only sell, sell like a 0.1 volume of THC at a time. So virtually it's still illegal, it's not decriminalized, etc. Now in your state, New Mexico, you are decriminalized uh, and you are full medical uh, and the legal status is a bit mixed in your state. Um, really the only states that don't have any uh, full, any sort of uh, legislation in terms of decriminalization or any flexibility law, so we're talking fully illegal still, are uh, South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, Kansas, Wyoming, and Idaho. They have no flexibility in their legal structure whatsoever. Um, and if this were a podcast being recorded, say, you know, 10 years ago, it'd be a lot easier to list off all the states that have full legal status uh, for THC. But as of right now, we have probably about a third or a quarter of states that are full legal. And then the majority have some sort of medical. So much, much more popular. Um, federally, it still is a Title I uh, substance, so incredibly illegal uh, in terms of the federal government. So thus no condoning or condemning unless you're one of the four people that won that. there's kind of this uh that court we settlement. talked about this briefly do what oh, i said unless you're one of those four people um I, I had to go look it up again there was a court settlement in 1976 that there was this program that uh, said that there were some people that the government had to provide uh sort of medical marijuana legal marijuana oh. to and there's only four of them left. There was originally 14 that were basically getting free marijuana from the government. Oh, wow. For why? Um, it grew out of a 1976 court settlement that created the first, the, the country's first legal pot smoker. Um, yeah, let's see. I'm trying to see what specifically... The government has only continued to supply them for compassion re compassionate reasons. Uh, one of the <laughs> recipients uh, relies on it to keep her glaucoma under control, and she entered the program okay. in 1988. 
Um, yeah, they basically won a court case saying that they think that they kind of fit within some certain category or criteria. And uh, yeah, so here it is. Uh, in 1976, a federal judge ruled that the Food and Drug Administration must provide Robert Randall of Washington, D.C. with marijuana because of his glaucoma. No other drug could effectively combat his condition. And he became the nation's first legal pot smoker since the drug's prohibition. And basically, because there was nothing else that could help him, mm-hmm. they ruled that like he has no other choice. It doesn't matter how, how illegal you want it to work. This is the only thing that's kind of allowing him to function. Um, and and you know, in, in be able to, to to deal with his medical condition. And so mm-hmm. they created a the program as a compromise over his care in 1978. Um, and this was before even the first state passed its, its legal law. And uh, there were petitions. And at one point there were 14. Now there are only four. Uh, four people hmm. left. And they're not really letting anyone else in. Right, right. Um, you hear something interesting. So like having a Schedule One drug have access because of medical reasons is not super uncommon. In fact, um, if no other ADHD prescription works for you, there is a methamphetamine option that you can pursue. Excuse me. I picked the wrong time to drink water while <laughs> listening to that because I was not expecting. I was like, oh, what drug is he going to talk about? Methamphetamines. Meth. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's not your neighbor's under the sink Sudafed meth. It's, you know, pharmacy grade. Um, but it's very, very, very rare to get that prescribed to you. I'd imagine. Um, and it's increasingly rare because of how similarly, like chemically, things like uh, Adderall or Ritalin are to the compound of methamphetamine to begin with. So, um, but you yeah, know, you can also move on to the next level, um, so to speak. So, kind of in line with uh, our exempt persons with uh, medical cannabis access, um, there is this narrative around uh, medical marijuana that either A, it's, you know, the devil's lettuce and is going to, you know, you're going to get addicted, it's going to ruin your life, you're going to become mad, you're going to, you know, get thrown out on the streets, life's going to spiral out of control. And then alternatively, we have our very optimistic crowd who believes that cannabis is, uh, you know, was grown in the Garden of Eden. It will solve all of your problems. You can treat it from everything from social anxiety down to, you know, I don't know, cancer, uh, which it is used to treat those things, uh, particularly palliatively. Um, But Uh, The truth so far from what we can gather from uh, scientific research is that it's kind of in between and it's kind of specific to exactly what you want to use. So, um, and there is some conflicting research as well. So I went ahead and pulled some articles. Um, These are all 2020, 2021 meta-analyses or systematic reviews of everything that has been done because we haven't really been doing marijuana research for that long. Um, it's a rather new area of research. And with its sort of stigma, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, 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 right right before I moved out, they were, they were talking about starting kind of their first 
first place to grow marijuana in Louisiana to use for medical study. So they're just going to use it for research. And apparently just Mm -hmm. the amount of red tape that they were having to go through just to try to set this up was was insane because again of that fear Mm. on that one end of the extreme of it's going to be terrible someone's going to break in someone's going to steal it some you know the, the the most extreme ways to view it mm-hmm. no absolutely so hasn't been you know it's kind of decentivized de-incentivized to actually participate in the research provide the substance for the research try to get irb approval for that kind of research i'm sure that would also be a nightmare and so we don't have a lot, but there are some good there are some good findings so far. Um, I will say the first one is that it's very mixed. So the best evidence that we have in terms of psychiatric treatment is on uh, social anxiety. That has seemed to be the most recurrent, strongest effect is that it's good at reducing social anxiety. Um, there are mixed results for treating schizophrenia. Um, okay. But this is particularly weird, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, so the it's it's mixed and it's kind of bipolar mixed, not as in like the condition, but as in like um, there's both very good and very bad. Um, there's a lot of case studies on uh, helping with sleep and PTSD with cannabis, okay. uh, but there hasn't been that many large scale efforts in that area. Um, and then there has been no, uh, there's only been negative findings in terms of treating depression. Oh. And so it's not looking super great for treating depression, but with social anxiety, it does seem to be a rather effective substance. Um, one of the interesting things, and we'll go back to the schizophrenia. Can, can, I, can, I, can I take a quick guess as to why? Because this yeah, might absolutely. might even tie into uh, what I might talk about a little bit with the uh, psilocybin uh, research is that it being a psychedelic may further manifest some of the hallucinatory symptoms or some of those extreme symptoms that we associate with schizophrenia. Yes, and it's a little worse than that. Oh, okay. So... You can have, you know, hallucinations associated with THC. Um, mania it can also be a consequence of THC and incorporate that as well. But you can also experience psychosis. And marijuana, particularly at use at a adolescent age at introduction or a young adult age at introduction, if you have the uh, genetic material present for the onset of schizophrenia, it can trigger and activate that. I mean, so, so that kind, of, you... kind of gets into the research on, you know, like the, the, there's a lot of research right now going into like the adolescent brain and especially involving like sleep and stress in high school. The mm-hmm. brain's still developing. What do you get a lot of and little of? Well, stress and a lot of stress, a little sleep, and that can have mm-hmm. issues. And so if you're also consuming drugs it could have an impact on those aspects of brain development that continue well Mm -hmm. into your early 20s so i will say you know we're not condoning or condemning here but 
I will be condemning adolescent use of uh, THC. Um, that is not a good idea. If you are under 18, you should not be consuming. Um, and partially because it's going to exacerbate that relationship between stress and sleep. But also if you have a fa other family members who have different, um, then you probably have some sort of genetic uh, predisposition to developing it. And if you start chronically using cannabis, that can trigger that to activate. Um, and one of the things with schizophrenia is that it's a young person's onset, yeah. uh, young adult onset. And so typically it's between the window of like 20 to 30 years old that uh, you see people developing schizophrenia. So very, you know, big, big red flag there. So that's why I find it funny that it's being used to also treat schizophrenia. And it has mixed results. Do you think that in part comes out of just the nature of this, like, hey, it, it seems to be effective with these things. Let's just try it on everything. Mm-hmm. As opposed yeah. to maybe, you know, like a real, like, oh, there's definitely something here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I honestly, that was one of the more surprising, um, you know, if I was a clinical pharmaceutical psychologist, I would probably have a little bit more literacy in the mechanisms at which it is helpful, kind of at that cellular neurological level. But I just have basic psychology information literacy, so I can interpret this data, but I can't exactly tell you why it works. I just tell you that some people have found it to work and some people haven't. And one of the more regularly occurring findings is that it can trigger people who are already predisposed to schizophrenia. Um, so that is that is something that's very interesting about this, that uh, anxiety seems to be the best uh, mental health condition to treat with schizophrenia. And then it's kind of mixed and case studied and, you know, here, there, the rest of the way. Um, something that is a little bit more in our domain, if we look at just the cognition. So one meta-analysis found with adolescents that uh, the cognitive processes and cognitive development can be uh, hurt by cannabis use. Um, but if you look at an adult sample, you see similar uh, cognitive deficits due to cannabis use. But after, uh, say, somebody stops smoking or, you know, eating their edibles, et cetera, uh, those cognitive abilities come back but there's not a long-term damage associated with it. So uh, okay. let me find the, uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. So we have cognitive impulsivity, cognitive flexibility, attention, short-term memory, and long-term memory are all affected negatively by cannabis use. Okay. But if you stopped using, you can get those back. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's 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 i i guess i guess what what they're finding with that is, is that that whatever whatever THC is doing in, in terms of how it's a sort of messing with the chemical function of the brain it's either inhibiting or or exciting certain things uh, in order to kind of disrupt or, or make it much more difficult um and and yeah, and but it is it is limited. I mean, we like taking, you know, like for individuals who who take psychopharmacological drugs, they're going to have an effect on you, 
but when you stop taking them, that effect goes away. It's having an effect on you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that was something very interesting. And I do want to point that out also between the two substances that we're talking about today is that they are credited as being the safest uh, substances to use, full stop. Um, there hasn't been a case of someone overdosing on THC. And I don't believe there has been one on cybacillin either, um, which I assume you will talk about. Yeah, there have been some really bad trips and some some there have been really bad trips, but 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 not necessarily, you know, someone. I don't know. I mean, maybe we haven't had a case like um, the movie Super Troopers. You know, the guy eats the entire bag of magic mushrooms, <laughs> and you know, probably needs to detox a little bit to to overcome it. But that that yeah, that not that um. I'll look it up. I'll look it up before uh, before we get to that. Yeah, no, and that's that's pretty much what we know so far. Um, you know, adolescents shouldn't be using it, um, both for cognitive reasons as well as risk of developing schizophrenia. Um, at least in adults, the cognitive deficits that you get through chronic use tend to reverse over time. Um, and then in terms of clinical treatment, uh, social anxiety seems to be the best uh case in order to use cannabis as a treatment but uh there seems to be we're still kind of parsing out we're at, we're still at the case study stage for sleep and ptsd at the moment um and then depression does not seem to be a uh ideal uh wait cannabis does not seem to be an ideal treatment for depression um and i'm sure like um just kind of within my social experience of uh, individuals in my lives who have depression or experienced depressive bouts and also have engaged in THC use, um, that seems to track well with their experiences is that, you know, you get what they call couch lock, um, where you get stuck on the couch and you fall into a rumination cycle, or you find that you've played the same video game for the past 12 hours, or you've eaten yourself out of house and home with the munchies. And then that doesn't really satisfy or, you know, help your depression at all. It kind of digs you in a little deeper. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> yes, no. <laughs> so, but typically, and that's kind of one of the other things, and this is uh, definitely not my area of expertise. Um, and there's kind of mixed conversations about this is that there's a two different kind of areas or clusters of types of cannabis you can either go with a sativa or an indica and some people swear by they are distinct some people say they're colloquially culturally distinct but there's not really a difference between the two um but you distinguish them by uh indica is has a euphemism into couch and okay. so you get the couch lock and it's a very slow uh sort of experience and then the sativa is more of that upper um let's go do all of the things i'm ready to go walk out in nature and you know be a woodland nymph or something um so it does kind of depend on it may or may not depend on the kind of cannabis you consume um but at least colloquially or at least in the folklore of cannabis users that uh indicas are more likely to put you in that state which would not be good for depression. Yeah, not ideal for depression. So, but anxiety, 
seems to be working out. So we will, uh, you know, hold out and see if that seems to play out over time. Because uh, like I said, it's a relatively new area of research. And so it's old enough that we st can finally start having meta-analyses and systematic reviews, but it's still new enough that we're still sitting in case study area quite a bit, so. It does seem to make sense. I mean, looking at things like anxiety and depression, because I mean, one of the big concerns with some antidepressants is that they can cause anxiety because they're trying to boost mm -hmm. mood states up. And in this case, THC, in, in a sense, is inhibiting a lot of these processes. It's depressing mood state um, or it, it's kind of bringing people down. And, and so for anxiety, that's probably a really good thing. You want to bring that level down. But if you're already low, you don't want to bring it down further. Mm hmm. And there's also something to say, and this is also, you know, not medically backed, but just kind of just within the folklore of the stoners, because um, we could probably have an entire episode about stoner fandom. Um, I'm gonna put that because on the list. they are vast and they have their own linguistics and they have their own folklore. Um, but one of the kind of attributes of how they conceptualize and talk about cannabis is that there usually comes a point in your late 20s or 30s if you've been you know chronically using that uh it will start causing anxiety instead of actually treating it and so you may be using it for a period of time um, and chronically getting into usage and then eventually it will start being the cause of the anxiety hmm. and you kind of get burned out on it but like I said, I don't have a source for that. That yeah. is, you know, stoner collective unconscious kind of knowledge. We're gonna we're gonna um, need a we're gonna need a greater acceptance and legality, and then a longitudinal study to be able yes, to, no. to look at something like that. Absolutely. So that is something that would be an excellent research question for anyone with the gumption to go through yeah. red tape and an IRB review who might be listening. And I would love doing... for you to do that study and then email me and then come on to the podcast and tell me about it. Anyone doing research in Colorado? Uh, right? <laughs> Oregon. Maybe we should find a Colorado researcher to come on with us and talk about weed. Yeah, we probably could. Right. Yeah, since we get ballsy enough to start inviting people we don't know. Yeah, yeah, that, that'll go on the list. Yes. All right, so that is what I have for cannabis. It is not a miracle drug. It was not grown in the Garden of Eden, but also it is not the schedule one reefer madness nightmare that our federal government wants us to believe it is you're not going to become addicted and overdose but also it's not going to like cure every problem you have um, yes it is not a replacement not a replacement for life and you know you will be it will be a trade-off you will be trading some of your short-term and long-term memory for whatever you're using the cannabis to treat so Psilocybin, on the other hand, is is also not a miracle cure. Um, <laughs> however, uh, it is probably a little potentially worse than THC. And and again, if we're talking about like it's still within that kind of safer for therapeutic use. Camp. Mm -hmm. I did find, um, and I I can link this article as well this is from an open treatment group but they had a medical professional review their work and they put that medical professionals credentials on here this uh, uh dan wegner 
He's um, he's an editor at American Addiction Centers. Uh, he worked for the go- as a government contractor in D.C., where he edited, basically worked on on websites and stuff for substance abuse and mental health services. So he has a background in this. He has an M.A. Um, and so, like, he, he's got some experience with this. He's done some research, um, and kind of gave him sort of a thumbs up. But and what they say is is that you can overdose. But one, it's not going to kill you. Mm-hmm. It's just a really bad trip. Um, and, and two, it, I mean, it could put you in the hospital, depending on how bad things are. Um, ingesting the wrong type of mushroom as well. If you're like, oh, this is a magic mushroom, and it's not, that could kill you because several mushrooms are poisonous. Uh, Very but, poisonous. But your typical quote-unquote magic mushroom is not. It has a low toxicity, so it would take an awful lot to put you in the hot, to, to, to kill you on its own. Um, like what eating it, apples. Right. What it could do, though, is, is cause anxiety and panic attacks. It could cause physiological symptoms. It could make you physically ill. Uh, agitation, paranoia, psychosis, uh, seizures, and, and in very extreme cases can cause, like, coma. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so they, they actually put one survey in 2016 found that out of more than 12,000 users who took uh, psilocybin, only 0.2% reported emergency medical treatment. And this is five times higher than MDMA or ecstasy, LSD, and cocaine. So <laughs> in the long run, it is a safer drug. But, and, and that's, that's one of the things that I see, I, I've seen throughout the literature. A lot of the literature now is focusing on things like microdosing. So taking like a tenth of what they would consider a, you know, an average size adult should be taking about um, uh, three and a half grams is, is what some of the, the articles had said. Taking a tenth of that has been okay. shown to have some effects. Um, but when people report issues, is they're sort of saying, well, I'm just going to start scarfing down mushrooms and not really kind of take into consideration that maybe I should take this in moderation, and they report some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's 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 the kind of short uh, on on overdosing. That um, uh, yes, but it's not it's not typically what we think of when we think of overdosing. You know, when someone mm-hmm. we're talking about like overdosing on heroin or methamphetamine or cocaine or something like that. Um, where someone is, is having this like really bad reaction because they've consumed too much and in too mm-hmm. little of a period of time. Um, it's basically like a super bad trip that makes the person sick to their stomach because they ate way too many of these mushrooms. And just like if you eat way too many of anything, that's really bad. It's going to make you sick. Uh, this one, but this one also comes with psychosis and hallucinations. This, this one comes with a dragon trying to eat you. Right. Oh, I was just going to ask you, do we have a ridiculously operationalized definition of a trip is? Oh, man, I don't think so. Most of the stuff, I mean, pro- probably, uh, most of the stuff that I found was, was people either, either being really frank about it. Mm-hmm. Let me see on that, that website I just closed. This is what I get for. Oh, uh, there we go. I've opened it again. All right. Uh, bad mushroom trip. 
you can also have quote unquote bad trips, which are unpleasant experiences on the drug. I mean, <laughs> so it's a pretty good like dry. It's just it's an unpleasant experience. Um, yeah, possible. That kind of makes sense because the what I understand about cybacillin is that it is a very individualized experience. Yeah, it says possible effects are frightening or intense hallucinations, anxiety, paranoia, panic, and fear. Bad trips may be more likely with first-time users, especially if they take large doses, again, um, or are already anxious about the, the drug or are depressed. So, oh. again, we have this common theme. Um, and yeah, if your anxiety's there, I remember watching, I don't think they used a, a psilocybin, I was watching this um, kind of reality TV show. These two guys went and lived with the Yanomami. I think it was the Yanomami in the Amazon. And they went out mm -hmm. to, to work with the shaman. And the shaman was very much like, you guys don't have any baggage, right? Like, because <laughs> if you got baggage, you, you, you should not do this. And both of them were like, no, 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 we're cool. We're cool. And one of them was fine. But one of them apparently had broken up with his girlfriend before doing this thing. And oh, no. saw her in the rainforest and then went running into the rainforest. And both the <gasps> other the other guy who is like on this psychedelic shamanistic trip and the shaman have to like go into the rainforest to, to try to find him, you know, before he gets oh, like no. eaten by a jaguar or something. Um and that so, kind of makes me yeah. question that percentage of people who end up in emergency care if that is the drug itself or if it's the you know trying to swim in the fireplace or you know i can fly off the roof yeah and if you're and, and that'd be the thing if you're anxious about taking the drug it could cause a bad trip because it's amplifying those anxieties it's a very personal experience according to the literature um they also yeah. said that things like unfamiliar or chaotic environments can also help with this and i've actually read some of that in, in some of these articles where they talked about part of the therapy that, that it's being used in is very inconsistent. And there, there's some newer research from the last couple of years that is trying to kind of form or find good matches for therapy styles and processes to like prepare people for use, help them through the use and then also help kind of integrate them back out when they're coming down. And mm. that seems to be really important too, because it can, there are a lot of people and there's a lot of literature that does seem to point to it. It, does, it can having profound effects on individuals, but things like control and being in a stress-free environment and having someone there to help like seem to maximize those benefits. And even like while the person's engaging with it, utilizing certain therapeutic techniques to kind of walk the person, to engage in self-reflection, behavioral, like these kind of behavioral cognitive techniques. Uh, one of them is ACT therapy um, that seems to have some benefit. But again, it's a lot of this is very preliminary. Even the meta-analyses, and I'm gonna use them and I'm doing air quotes, are like, we looked at four studies and it is oh, a meta no. it is a meta analysis because there just aren't a lot but they're trying to kind of combine what they, what they do have there are some other slightly larger ones but they're trying to combine what they do have um, case studies meta analyses to try to 
understand the drug better. Um, and and there, there's a ton of research out there uh, looking at it from a clinical perspective. Some of it's super fascinating, uh, especially because they are taking into account like placebo, you know, placebo trials or placebo uh, control conditions instead of just giving it to people and seeing what happens. And so they're doing a lot of control. They're, they're, they're sort of engaging what we should be engaging when any sort of drug research. Um, so, yeah, I mean, outside of that, love, I've got, I've got a, I've got a fair bit of notes, but I'll kind of run through some of the, the highlights. Um, so psilocybin is part of this sort of classical psychedelics. They, this is, this is your operant um, definition that are operational definition. The classical psychedelics are groups of substances that produce characteristic alterations in cognition, perception, and emotion, primarily through agonism of serotonin 5-HT2A receptors in the brain. Oh. So basically they're, they're, they're agonists. Uh, they're affecting the serotonin receptors in the brain. Um, and that's essentially how psilocybin is, is working in this case. Uh, there's, if you do a Google Scholar search, there's about 8,500 articles on therapy, there's about 8,200 articles referencing cognition. Um, and there's, there's a lot more when you include like general examinations. So like these, like that original definition goes back to 2004. And so oh, okay. we've, we've got a fair bit, you know, at least 15-ish years of research delving into this topic. So there's been a, a number of things. Uh, there was an early study by Carhart Harris, or Carhart Harris is their name, et al. Um, and they they used, a lot of this is very, I guess, maybe cautious based on our last discussion of really small sample sizes, but it's a medical study. So you've got 30 participants being run through an fMRI. Um, and right. No, it's it's appropriate. This is our episode after we get canceled from neuroscience, right? To <laughs> immediately use it. I mean, because because at least at this point, like, there's some caution to be had. Like, we we definitely need more people. But what they did in this case is is that they they basically looked at their brains on, or, or I mean, like a placebo, like a control run, no effect, and then they looked after taking psilocybin. And they found that, it said that the researchers were surprised to discover that drug effects were associated with decreases in activity in a number of key brain areas. So it's reducing those effects rather than the expected increase. After receiving psilocybin, uh, brain blood flow decreased. Hmm. It indicated reduced activity. Um, in particular, activity in areas regarded as important network hubs that maintain the connectivity in various areas of the brain showed the most consistent deactivation. So particularly the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex. And if you have no idea what that means, the short answer is, is that these are areas of the brain um, associated with, areas of the brain associated with kind of like, like higher order control. Um, there's, there's a lot of like kind of higher order conscious processing. Um, but also being able to like drown out. Some of the other studies that I found said that, that what it seems because, um, here's one note, that the authors argue that the findings are consistent with Huxley's idea that normal consciousness acts as a reducing valve. That it actually, mm. it actually constrains 
how much information a person normally takes in. So especially if we're talking about prefrontal cortex stuff or PFC stuff, um, that the idea is, is that this is going to help keep us from being overwhelmed. Right. And that's actually kind of one of the arguments around, maybe we can, we can throw this into our discussion later on on um, disorders, is, is that one of the things with, with schizophrenia, it seems to be an overactivation of dopamine like the reward circuit gone amok. And so basically everything becomes rewarding. Everything becomes important and you can't filter out these mm -hmm. things. And, and, and so in order for your brain to kind of cope with that, you have this sort of uh, psychotic or, or, or you know, reaction to where you maybe start hearing something. It's your brain essentially interpreting this massive firing of signals. Um, but in this case, it's like kind of reducing our ability to control that uh, with these areas. Okay. And so, um, so, so Huxley argued that this is sort of a reducing valve. It constrains how much information so that one isn't overwhelmed by chaotic stimuli. Therefore, the apparent mind expanding effect of psychedelic drugs is due to the relaxation of this constraining. And so the parts of the brain that it's affecting, that it's reducing, is part of this ability to constrain some of those things. So we're taking in, more, we're allowing more information in. We're allowing, we're basically removing the barrier, the, the attention barrier for, for a lack of a better term. How very holy mountain. Yes, very much so. Uh, the reduced activity- No, that's interesting. Oh, go ahead, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they said that the reduced activity of the brain connector hubs might permit a quote, unconstrained style of cognition producing psychedelic effects and there has been some research that shows like heightened creativity more thinking outside the box in terms of problem solving tasks and stuff like that that again because if you're breaking down those barriers uh, what would normally keep them keep that information or keep those stimuli from from kind of too much of it getting in Hmm. Yeah, no, because usually when you hear about people who take psilocybin, they say that there's like, they feel like there's an over uh, activation going on, but really just so psilocybin is shutting down your control and like uh, ability to filter. And so really, you're just experiencing your brain without the, uh, you know, breaks. Right, that, that it seems, and, and this is pretty consistent across the board in the research, and this was a 2012 study, but um, that, that it does seem that it, it is not activating parts of the brain. It's actually reducing those parts of the brain that keep you from overactivating, that keep you that's from kind of, experiencing that. That's kind of existentially horrifying. A little bit. Yeah, you're actually- A little bit. I feel weird about that. Yeah. Huh. Okay. No, yeah. that's cool. Yeah, th there's a lot of others. Uh, Carter in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience um, uh, using psilocybin uh, to investigate the relationship between attention, working memory, and serotonin receptors. They found that uh, it increased emotional, but not cognitive empathy compared to a placebo. And the increase in implicit emotional empathy was significantly increased um, Basically, it, it changed the meaning of, of, of percepts, um, uh, changed the meaning of, you know, kind of how they engaged with, with tasks that they, they were asked to do. In contrast, things like moral decision-making remain unaffected. Hmm. 
so it has distinct effects on social cognition by enhancing emotional empathy, but not moral behavior. And so your morals don't change necessarily, but you become more emotionally empathetic, but not like hmm. cognitively empathetic. So it doesn't really impair like your ability to kind of logically form empathy, but like you feel more empathy for people. Interesting. And that, that again, might, might kind of break down to, again, those barriers that, that, you know, we can steal ourselves to some things. We see something really sad. Like, we still feel empathetic, but, like, we don't want it to overwhelm us. Uh-huh. But if those barriers are broken down, like, we can't not let it overwhelm us. Ooh. Kind of the way, the way okay. I, at least I perceive it, so... <laughs> Yeah, no, that is totally so. Yeah, no, this information has totally flipped the way that I perceive Cybersillin now. And so they say it, they are arguing that it has implications uh, for potential treatment for uh, dysfunctional social cognition. So that kind of takes us back to our, our social psych roots. So, someone who has trouble socially engaging with people um, or engaging in those levels of social cognition, especially revolving around empathy and perspective taking and things like that that this might again break down some of those those barriers so so are you suggesting that we need to give people cybacillin based on how high they score on the dark triad maybe maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's what they're suggesting and this is 2017 like we're, we're talking about fairly recent research on this too uh, there's hey. another one uh uh Porni et al and in, in neuropsychopharmacology they looked at it with um, empathy and decision-making. Uh, they found it, it reduced attentional tracking ability, but had um, no significant effect on spatial working memory. Um, let's see. Um, performance may reflect a reduced ability to suppress or ignore distracting stimuli rather than reduced attentional capacity. And so, like, again, it's, it's, it, it's not really, it's not really reducing capacity, it's reducing that tracking ability, that mm -hmm. you suddenly become overwhelmed, and it's harder for you to pay attention, because you can't, you can't filter it, you, you can't control it. Um, huh. Yeah, it gets uh, the, the microdosing study uh, in the Netherlands uh, in 2018, this was um, uh, led by uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Prochaskova uh, of the Cognitive Psychology Unit and Leiden Institute for the Brain and Cognition. Um, it was published in Psychopharmacology. And, and what they concluded is taken together, our results suggest that consuming a microdose of psychedelic truffles allowed participants to create more out-of-the-box alternative solutions to a problem thus providing preliminary support for the assumption that microdosing improves divergent thinking. Hmm. And so even in small doses, it can maybe break those things down enough to where maybe you're not, you're not falling prey to things like fixation or yeah. looking at those, you know, looking at, looking at every problem as a nail or something like that. Um, yeah. Did I, did I ever tell you that when I was an undergrad, I worked in a um, a uh, creativity lab? No. Yeah, so that's what I did through undergrad. Um, and we had our participants set up teams. So we did uh, social identity and creativity. 
And so they were two different teams that had to compete to come up with the best zombie survival plan. Was the main study that we ran. Ooh. And so I got to read them like their little like the year is 2014 <laughs> and the zombie apocalypse has broken out due to a pharmaceutical blah 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 blah. So like thinking about that in terms of, you know, adding cybacil into the mix. <laughs> right, right. Um would see that increase in uh, both group identity and creativity, actually. Yeah, the, the, there's, and then kind of the last one I, I, I that, that kind of like really flashed out to me just to sort of like, here's some interesting effects. Um, another study by uh, Braver Manova uh, in um, psychopharmacology found that, that it disrupts sensory and higher order cognitive processing, but not pre-attentive cognitive processing um so hmm. like, basically it has an effect on some of those higher order cognitions um, mm-hmm. so kind of kind of tracks with the earlier research on prefrontal cortex and um what's the other area the uh posterior cingulate cortex so those higher order cortice cortical areas um and then if we get into some of the more modern stuff, um, I mean, this is all pretty modern, 2018, but we get into like 2020, there are some meta-analyses, like I said, four studies. N is 117, which is pretty, pretty good in for a med- medical collection. Uh, but the, yeah, no, I'm not mad about that. They looked at four trials. Uh, one was just a sort of standard trial with just psilocybin. The other would, had a placebo control. The other three had placebo control. And they found that within group pre, uh, pre post and pre follow up effects on anxiety and depression were large. And so this had positive effects on both um, anxiety and depression. So, unlike with THC, where you see those drops in depression, this seems to have an effect. Uh, and they, they also found that all three placebo-controlled studies, pre-post placebo-controlled effects were also large. So when controlling for the effects of the placebo, you still see these, these positive effects. Um, they also found that, that over the course of these studies, no serious adverse effects were reported. So they, they had no serious side effects amongst the individuals. Um, and they were taking, was this the one that the, I, I don't I have one where they were mentioning numbers. I, this might have been the one where they were, they were talking about still they were still taking very small amounts. Like it wasn't like mm. they were taking grams. It was milligrams to to right. see some of these. They effects. weren't tripping. Um, and, and there's some others that show uh, support. There's a study in 2017 by uh, Johnson um, et al. that 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 found that that psilocybin may help with um, facilitating smoking cessation. So getting people to quit smoking. <laughs> so, uh, and yeah, it just seems that there may be some effect there that it, it may help sort of curb some of those withdrawal symptoms and, and help individuals. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it kind of, again, focusing on these, these different these different situations, um, how it affects the brain. There's there's a pretty good understanding, I think, now amongst a lot of the medical literature on sort of what's going on. Um, that again, it's not activating; it's maybe deactivating or decreasing activity in some areas. Uh, I'm 
trying to, trying to I'm not it. particularly literate in this area, but I think uh, I've seen a few headlines about cybacillin and PTSD. Did that come across your screen at all? Uh, not that I found in my kind of cursory overview. I was trying to mainly look at, all right, how does it affect the brain? And mm-hmm. what are some of the most recent clinical studies? Um, or at least are, are there any meta-analyses out there? Um, and so I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Can, can always do the initial Google Scholar search on a fly. Uh, on right. the fly. <laughs> No, if that's what we were at a class, I'd be like, oh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll tell oh. you next lecture. Like, it's like, it's like uh, if you put in a, a psilocybin therapy, it's like the uh, sixth or seventh is PTSD. Cool. Uh, yeah, 2019, a use of MDMA and psilocybin on the treatment of PTSD, uh, novel psychopharmacological therapies for psychotic, psychiatric disorders. For psilocybin and MDMA, so it looks like they're also trying ecstasy as well, which mm-hmm. I would feel is even is, is much less safe in the long run. But um, yeah, we need to do more research on MDMA. Apparently, that's the up and coming one. Yeah, uh, I just I see. I, I grew up in like I, I remember when ecstasy was first hitting the market because of. A lot of the news reports when I was in like elementary school, middle school, like getting into like the, the early, you know, early to mid nineties when it was really hitting, like, I mean, it was probably already had hit the rave scene by then, but at least mm-hmm. when the news was talking about it, one of the big things that we're talking about were, you know, Hey, it causes this flood of serotonin in the brain. And it's really great for people um, until they take too much and they run out of serotonin. Like they can't keep up with the amount that their brain is using or their, their brain can't make enough. And then they get severely depressed. And then it was just all the bad things involved in that because mm-hmm. there were some high profile cases. Not to say that I don't believe the news, but the news has a long history of uh, yeah. hyper fixating on the possible worst case scenario for any kind of drug. Um, I don't right. know if you're aware of this, but the uh, crack cocaine uh conversation that was going on in like the 80s 90s oh yeah um and they were talking about the crack babies yeah turns out the crack babies aren't a thing oh that those kids are totally fine and that a lot of their problems are actually due to poverty (laughs) and not actually the crack that their uh mothers were consuming you don't say poverty's Mm -hmm. the cause so i i here here's uh here's a little little snippet of some um getting back to psilocybin and PTSD. Uh, PTSD presently affects about uh, PTSD presently affects about 8% of Americans. Many of the current treatments only offer symptomatic relief and do not work for every case. Psychedelics presently offer an alternative method of healing that focuses on treatment of the core issues. Currently it is one of the few PTSD based therapies that allows for physical contact in the form of comfort and solidarity in the human connection. Uh, basically, they're just sort of like, we need to study it more. <laughs> that that it does that have kind of high with, potential. Yeah, yeah, that kind of runs with what you were saying about the high higher levels of uh, emotional empathy that it causes. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely you know, I mean, it's going to be one of those things that we're talking about with neuroscience. You know, give it about five years. 10 years and 
um, we're gonna have some some amazing stuff coming out of it, and uh, that that it'll be really really fascinating, um, just to sort of be burgeoning research. I mean, really, mm-hmm. because it's becoming a lot less stigmatized, and that's really I think mm-hmm. what's allow allowing this to happen. Yeah, no, and we would have. I mean, we could have had all this research sooner. Um, yes, if it weren't for our prohibition, right? Uh, era. Uh, in the United States, because, you know, if we go back to our conversation about Freud and how he loved his uh, cocaine, um, right. psychologists have been w- wanting and willing to study this for a long, long time. Yeah. Except now we're, you know, using fMRIs instead of saying, hmm, you've got ghosts in your blood, do cocaine about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I've got I've got one more study I want to bring up just because I found it and I thought it was very interesting because we, we tend to, you know, we've been talking about this from a clinical perspective. What about from a social slash personality perspective? Okay. The effects of psilocybin therapy on personality structure. Ooh. Can you give someone psilocybin and change their personality? So they looked at, 20 patients with moderate or severe unipolar uh, TRD, uh, treatment-resistant depression. Okay. Um, they received oral psilocybin, 10, between 10 and 25 milligrams, which is pretty low uh-huh. in dosage. Uh, one week apart, so only once a week, so very small dosage, once a week. And they gave them the neopi, so neuroticism, extroversion, openness, uh, personality inventory, um, and let's see, and the subjective. Oh, and then they they measured their subjective psilocybin experience with the altered states of consciousness scale, which we should probably find and take. Uh, yeah, while we're watching altered states again. Uh. <laughs> so what they found is is that uh, neuroticism scores decreased. So that's good. We want low neuroticism. Extroversion increased, hmm. and and so uh, these changes were in the direction of normative data and were both predicted. Uh, in an exploratory analysis, the degree of insightfulness experienced during the session, um, and then also openness scores increased following psilocybin, whereas conscientiousness showed trend level increases. Agreeableness did not change. Interesting. So I think they kind of expected like getting out of a depressive, like some depressive symptoms, you should see maybe higher extroversion. So like a willingness to engage more. Um, You should see lower neuroticism, which would be expected for, you know, high neuroticism is typically associated with experienced psychological difficulties. Uh, But what they also found was an increase in um, like some slight trends in conscientiousness and openness. And I mean, maybe if you're taking magic mushrooms, you're like, well, I've tried this. Maybe I'll try other things. But uh, yeah, they Mm. say that they say our observation in changes in personality measures after psilocybin therapy was mostly consistent with reports of personality change in relation to conventional antidepressants. And so what we would expect to see uh, although the pronounced increases in extroversion and openness might constitute an effect more specific to psychedelic therapy. Hmm. 
we need further exploration <laughs> and study. Yes. Yes. I need to know more. Um, I don't, not sure which uh, altered states of consciousness scale that was used, um, but I did find the Dietrich, Lamparder, and Maurer from uh, Germany. It's a long scale. It is actually <laughs> 94 items. Oh, wow. It has five different dimensions, and it asks you on a liquor scale of, did this thing happen to you? No, not more than usually, all the way up to, yes, much more than usually. And so we have things of like, <clears throat> some of the ones I saw, I heard single words without knowing where they came from. Bodily sensations were enjoyable. I felt like a puppet or marionette. I this felt is... like I was being transformed forever in a miraculous way. I saw regular patterns with closed eyes or in complete darkness. I perceived everything as blurry as if through a fog. Should, should we have taken this while we were watching the Holy Mountain? I felt one with my surroundings. Maybe. It, it I is. Felt uh, as if I was paralyzed. The one that I found was uh, the one that they cited was Dietrich. 98 so oh yeah the world number 45 the world seems to me beyond good and evil Ooh. i experienced everything as frighteningly disordered i was scared <laughs> without knowing exactly why well hopefully we don't have anyone currently listening while under the influence and now they're going yes yes <laughs> yes, yes yes much more than usually <laughs> um before we get to the all-important bias of the week, um, if you were to run a cybacillin study, if, you know, uh. the magical IRB fairy came to you and said, I will clear away all this red, what would you want to study? Um, I've got this, I've, I've had this idea in mind to do something along the lines of um, using writings to influence, like to see to track personality changes. So not just taking like a personality survey. So, you know, if you could prime certain things, could you see changes in how a person writes and, and be, be really interested to do like a, a big like linguistic study. So get them to like tell stories or write something and track a bunch of linguistic factors, see what word, word use changes. I mean, especially if it's expand, you know, quote unquote expanding the mind by restricting some of these areas that, that wouldn't be really fascinating and I, I think that would be kind of within the realm of maybe a safer study <laughs> mm -hmm. then um but yeah to delve delve a lot more and i think into like the linguistics i think that would be that'd be interesting see how people respond i wouldn't want to do it with like thc so just have a bunch of couch locked participants who don't want to write anything <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Fair. I think I'm caught between wanting to run the uh, dark triad yeah. study. Like have them do cybacillin and see if their dark triad reduces. Could, could I think you take, that would be way cool. Take people higher in like sociopathic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Does your and... narcissism lower? Does your psychopathy lower? I don't think I would see Machiavellian lower though. Well, no, um, I don't know. Yeah, but it'd definitely be, the psychopathy and the narcissism might. Wouldn't that be great, though? Just you know, right. maybe we talked about the prejudice drug. You know, 
anti-prejudice drug. Could we have an anti-psychopath drug? I will say I'm not entirely hopeful, and I'm not sure the differences between psilocybin and uh, LSD, but they did run some preliminary studies in the 60s with LSD and psychopaths, and it did not have an effect. So, but, but if we're if we're not talking about like full blown psychopaths, but maybe people with heightened dark triad tendencies, we don't have to have a full blown narcissist, but someone who is a little narcissistic, mm-hmm. maybe it can help them mellow out. You know, may, maybe maybe. The, maybe the effect isn't a big effect, but it would be enough for someone who's not really high on the scale. True, true. Like non clinical narcissists. Yeah, I'll go to, to Dr. Plon's drops in the bucket. Like, could they just remove yeah. enough from the bucket or make their bucket a little bigger with a little mm-hmm. more emo- emotional empathy? Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah, cool. So I guess I should cover our bias of the week. So I figure if we're talking about drugs, um, what's a perfect bias to talk about? Because we're supposed to say no to drugs. Drugs are bad, right? So we're going to talk about reactance bias. Oh, no. (laughs) It's it's based on Bream, 1966. It's the tendency to do the opposite of someone wants you to do out of a need to resist a perceived attempt to constrain your freedom of choice, regardless of the facts. So interesting when, when they tell you you shouldn't do drugs drugs are bad and they kind of beat you over the head with it. you go i kind of want to do some drugs now did you have to sit through some anti-drug uh propaganda in elementary school daniel i went through dare in elementary and yep. middle school and um no one's ever offered me drugs for free who's gonna who's gonna give away drugs seriously i mean i will say i had my first semester so this is so full disclosure here uh i'm a homeschooler so i was not uh propagandized by the education system to say no to drugs uh but i still knew not to do drugs yeah (laughs) because one doesn't need a dare program to you don't need to see people's teeth fall out of their face to you know not do drugs right um, but I was kind of in the same mindset. I was like, no, nobody's just going to offer me free drugs until I took a speech class and, uh, at a community college. And oh. one of my, uh, peers asked if I wanted to go out to his car for a bump before we had to go give our, uh, persuasive speeches. Oh. And I was like, uh, I, I'm an awkward homeschooler. I don't know. No, 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 no. Thank you. Thank you for the <laughs> offer though. I really appreciate it. Like, uh, yeah, but I think I'm just going to go in and sit down. <laughs> I, I think I'm okay. But I was shocked. I was like, in the parking lot? So at you 2 actually, p.m.? You actually were offered drugs. By yeah, a, free by, drugs. Yeah. Oh, that's... Yeah, so... so and my awkward homeschool self did not know what to do with that situation, <laughs> so I just went to class. I, 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 will, I, will, um, I will give a shout-out. Maybe it'll be kind of like the YouTube video. You know, someone who's far more popular than will ever be. YouTube video of the week um, is that uh, Eddie Burbach uh, did a great video on Dare, and oh, it, okay, yeah, he's I think probably closer to your age than mine, 
And so, like, he's coming at it from, like, a generation under me. Mm-hmm. But, but talked about its failures. But also how it does seem that whoever's involved in it did learn from some of that. And their newest kind of variation of D.A.R.E. seems to be pretty effective. Like, it does have mm-hmm. some good um, actual data supporting its outcomes. Because they're not, like... It's not like scare tactics and like having the police officer come in and like give you the rundown and kind of tap into that reactance factor where you're kind of beat over the head with it. And you're like, hey, I'm an American. I have freedom of choice. No one's going to constrain that. I want to do drugs. I'll do drugs. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why it's important to kind of talk about them in a more intelligent, realistic way, as opposed Mm -hmm. to hiding it or not talking about it or talking about it as part of the sort of fearful boogeyman um, because it could activate reactants. Mm-hmm. And kind of tied to this idea. So like, absolutely, absolutely think drug education should be a thing. Like, oh, yeah. don't get me wrong. Um, I think literacy around substance use is very, very important. Um, but also kind of that like, let's show you pictures of meth now for the yeah. next 10 minutes. Um, which is also very classist because meth doesn't cause your mouth to do that. It's actually the poverty and not having access to oral care. Um, but that also kind of ties into terror management theory because you start seeing those pictures or similar with like sex classes, like the abstinence only. Oh yeah. Um, the immediate response is either, oh, you're telling me not to, so I'm going to do it. And the justification of, oh, that's awful. That can't happen to me. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live forever. Right. And so you distance yourself from that because clearly that's not po- that outcome is not possible. So, no, those fear tactics work are poor for both reasons. Yeah, one of the one of the best studies on this, um, they they had these very highly graffitied uh, restrooms on a college campus. And so the researchers went into each of them. They cleaned them from top to bottom. So no graffiti. And then they put up signs that either said, do not draw on the bathroom walls or please do not draw on the bathroom walls. And they found that when you say do not draw, people drew more on those, yeah. those walls than the other. Like just a very simple, my freedom is being restricted. So I feel this kind of tendency or this emotional response that makes me have to do it to get rid of that negative feeling (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh i am i am a full believer and uh indulging in reactance bias (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so yeah i guess guess that brings us us to the end yeah and um so just as this is kind of i guess a teaser um we're going to try to explain we'll explain next time on what our next topic sensation and perception has to do with um 1976 R- richard dawkins book and uh the internet and that's all i'm going to say maybe corvids and magic and magic and wizards be a little bit of magic dark political wizards dark political wizards i want that on, warlocks warlocks like, my title dark political wizard office door dark political wizard so we're going to try to understand that and maybe try to learn their secrets 
next time. Awesome. Well, until next week, goodbye. Bye.